Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll discuss the historic Duval High School, Jacksonville's public school number one. They had a literary club. They had lots of arts activities. They put on lots of drama, including, uh, you know, this was the norm for schools in Florida at the time. They put on uh, vaudeville shows. As Earth Day approaches, we'll talk about writers documenting Florida's environmental history. Once born, we can live without mother or father or any other kin or any friend or any human love. We cannot live without the Earth or apart from it. And we'll visit the only Everglades in the world. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In 1922, a group of student singers from Duval High School performed Sally, Won't You Come Back to Our Alley on radio station WDAL. Duval High School, Jacksonville's public school number one, was established in 1877. Like many buildings in downtown Jacksonville, the school was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1901. Tim Gilmore is an author and writer for jackspsychogeo.com. He explains that Duval High School was rebuilt in 1907 and expanded quickly. By 1920 and 22, uh, uh, the school built two uh, additions, an addition on either side. And uh, just five years after that second edition, 1927, uh, was Duval High School's last graduating class. During its 20-year heyday from 1907 to 1927, Duval High School had an active student body. In addition to having a variety of performing arts groups, Duval High School won the state football championship in 1913 and the state basketball championship in 1926. Tim Gilmore. That's really interesting to me looking at uh, <laughs> school yearbook quotes. Uh, they were they were. Uh, very literary, you know, um, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, 
often grandiose. Um, you know, you would, you would probably refer to a lot of their selections as purple prose. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the young men uh, sometimes referred to them, you know, their quotes referred to them or compared them to Alexander the Great. And so you can see kind of the, the gender norms of the time period too, and what, uh, you know, the conquest that was going to be expected of the young men. Uh, and then, you know, with the young women, uh, you know, that they should be fair as a rose in May and things like that. Um, but they did have, uh, they had uh, a literary club, they had lots of arts activities, they, they put on uh, lots of, of drama, um, including, uh, you know, this was the norm for schools in Florida at the time, they put on uh, vaudeville um, shows. And so you can look in some of the old yearbooks and see, um, uh, you know, not only were they uh, using songs from um, the, the biggest plays on Broadway at the time, um, but there was, there's also um, inevitably minstrelsy involved and students wearing blackface and, um, you know, things that um, really resonate with us now, obviously, but um, did not so much with white students at Duval High School in this um, Jim Crow time period. Students came to Duval High School from all over the city, but many walked to school from Springfield, an affluent neighborhood with Victorian-style homes. By the mid-1920s, the demographics of downtown Jacksonville were changing. 1931, this is just four years after Duval High School closes, uh, but it gives context to the changing uh, demographics in the city at the time. Uh, the comprehensive city plan of Jacksonville referring to Springfield said uh, many former residents during the past four or five years have left Springfield to live in other areas where property is restricted. Uh, and that meant, you know, by race. Uh, and it said tenement dwellers have entered Springfield and the property generally speaking is depreciating. And when this state starts, its rate of progress is rapid. So um, what was happening in uh, Springfield would happen uh, more generally in uh, historic um, center, center city neighborhoods in the decades to come, but kind of got an early start in, in some ways in Springfield. Tim Gilmore believes it's the demographic changes around Duval High School that led to its abrupt closure in 1927. Jacksonville already had what is now an historic African-American high school. The Stanton School dates back to the 1860s, but its current red brick structure was built in 1917. Stanton School uh, in uh, La Villa, and, um, which is a little bit to the west, and generally people think of La Villa as part of downtown now. Uh, it was in its time, uh, first its own town, <laughs> and then uh, its own uh, community and district, uh, and it was a dense um, uh, people think of it as a historically black district, which it was, but it was also uh, really diverse. Uh, there was a Syrian population there and a Chinese population there and a Cuban population there. Uh, but Stanton High School um, was, uh, you know, the, the segregated black high school. And this, of course, is where uh, James Weldon Johnson was was principal for a time period. Uh, and, um, and Stanton High School is uh, standing empty right now and not in very good shape. And its board has recently asked city council for, uh, for help. Um, it's, it's hard to see exactly what might happen with Stanton um, at this point, but uh, it would be an enormous loss if Jacksonville couldn't do something with it.
Following its closure in 1927, the Duval High School building was repurposed several times. It was briefly a junior high school in the 1940s and was then used as administrative offices for Duval County Public Schools until 1971. By 1980, the former school became the Stevens Duval Apartments for the elderly. In 1980, it reopens as a um, senior residential space. And what's really fascinating about this is that some of the uh, students who had actually attended Duval High School ended up living in the building, which <laughs> was at this point converted to uh, Stevens Duval Apartments. Um, and, you know, I guess if you had great high school memories, that, that could be a good thing. Um, if not, it, it might sound like hell, you know. Um. <laughs> high school reunions for former Duval High School students were held at Stevens Duval Apartments. Martha Wells was the last living student from the last Duval High School graduating class of 1927. She went to the University of Florida and became a teacher and principal, working for Duval County Public Schools for 40 years. The oldest uh, former student of Duval High School uh, just passed away a few years ago. Um, and uh, she was 102 years old, and she died in, in uh, 2011. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's something kind of haunting about looking at the, uh, the final yearbook, which I use a number of images uh, from in a recent story um, that I wrote about this at jackpsychogeo.com. Um, there's something kind of haunting uh, in, in looking at their senior quotes and um, the drawings of a person who later became a prominent artist and was daughter of a prominent artist. You know, and then they had these odes to the school and saying that, you know, they, they referred to the school as as a mother and that, you know, they were for the rest of their lives, they'd be carrying the forth the memory of, of uh, you know, their the, the mother's school. And, uh, you know, this was the last year, uh, 1927. And so um, uh, those memories, of course, pass on when people pass on. And so. Uh, 2011, 102 years old, the last uh, Duval High School student passed away. The Duval High School building lives on thanks to architect Ted Pappas, who renovated the neoclassical structure after it was saved from demolition. Tim Gilmore. Ted Pappas is uh, he's a beloved figure here in Jacksonville uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, he has done some really significant um, modern designs in the city, but he's also done uh, some really important historic preservation work. His career has always kind of, um, you know, tackled both things, uh, went back and forth between both things. Uh, he uh, uh, designed a, a very um, kind of mid-century modern, but also looking back to ancient Greece, uh, stru a structure for uh, the Greek Orthodox Church here in, in Jacksonville. Uh, and he's, he's probably best known for a very brutalist um, piece of architecture, uh, the um, Singleton Retirement Center, uh, uh, which was done, I uh, forget the exact year right now, but it was late, late 70s, right around 1980. But he also 
uh, was responsible for renovating um, Duval High School, um, Old St. Andrew's uh, Church, which was built in the, the 1800s and is now um, used by the Jacksonville Historical Society for its uh, meetings and its programs. Um, the, uh, the Seminole Club um, near uh, the center of the city um lots and lots of buildings it, it kind of feels like you can throw a baseball downtown from one of the the historic structures that ted pappas has um you know saved in, in one way or another to the next uh, so uh his career has been prolific and has looked both forward with um uh you know interesting um modern designs and um constantly focused on saving the city's historic architecture as well tim gilmore is author of books on jacksonville history and writer for jackspsychogeo.com he spoke with us about duval high school jacksonville's public school number one sally. oh sally won't you come back to This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org for a variety of entertaining educational resources, including archived editions of this program and our public television series, Florida Frontiers. You can also subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, I'm dating myself here, but I remember, I think it was my first grade class celebrating the first Earth Day, and that tradition continues today. Yes, the month of April includes the celebration of Earth Day on the 22nd. For those who are unfamiliar with the annual celebration of Earth Day, the first one was held on April 22, 1970, in the wake of the 1969 Santa Barbara, California oil spill. On the first Earth Day, President and Mrs. Richard Nixon planted a tree on the White House lawn. Joining the celebration of Earth Day were some 20 million Americans in colleges and universities, primary and secondary schools, and the communities across the nation. Now, 51 years later, Earth Day is celebrated in 192 countries around the world. And in Florida, Florida writers have taken different approaches to looking at Florida's environmental history, and Florida historians have analyzed some of those works. Yeah, it seems appropriate to think about Florida's environmental history and different approaches scholars take in their research. For our first conversation, I selected two articles from past issues of the Quarterly that use literature to think about the state's environmental history. 
The first one is Dr. Jack Davis's sharp prose for green, John D. MacDonald and the First Ecological Novel, which was published in 2009, and Florence M. Turcott's For This is an Enchanted Land, Marjorie Kennan Rawlings and the Florida Environment, which was published in 2012. Now, I confess that for years, John McDonald's Travis McGee series was my favorite beach reading. Like all readers of McDonald's books, I was aware of his love of natural Florida and his hatred of the river of concrete and the pursuit of wealth at any cost that the state had become. So I was really excited when Jack Davis submitted this manuscript, but I was unprepared for the complex ways in which McDonald's personal involvement with environmental issues was reflected in his writing. The depth of his knowledge on coastal ecology and his prescient understanding of the future of the oxygen-carbon dioxide imbalance in 1969 came as a surprise. McDonald's entertaining stories educated thousands of readers about the destruction of Florida's coasts, swamps, and forests, and his public activism challenged those out to make a quick buck. For McDonald, the challenge is not in nature, but in the development mentality that seeks to subvert and control nature for profit. Now, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings was active in the Florida Historical Society in the 1930s and 40s. She presented at our annual meetings, and I believe she even served on the board of directors at one point. She's best known for documenting Florida's rural culture in her writing. Yes, if McDonald's rigorous campaign against out-of-control development revealed an intensity and anger toward the world of the late 20th century, the work of Marjorie Cannon Rawlings created stories that are more searching probes into the lives of Floridians who inhabited spaces on the margins. Rawlings, a northern transplant like McDonald, lived at Cross Creek, an isolated farm community in Alachua County. Her work introduced readers to people who lived and struggled with inhospitable land in order to survive. Rawlings described her neighbors in a 1951 letter. They are living an entirely natural and very hard life, disturbing no one. Civilization has no concern with them except to buy their excellent corn liquor and to hunt in season across their territory with alarming abandon. Yet almost everything they do is illegal, and everything they do is necessary to sustain life in that place. Flo Turcott, who is the curator of the Marjorie Kennan Rawlings Collection at the University of Florida, interprets Rawlings' work not as a regionalist, but as an environmental writer. Turcott uses a quote from Rawlings' semi-autobiographical book, Cross Creek, to illustrate her close connection to nature. We are bred of earth before we were born of our mothers, Rawlins wrote. Once born, we can live without mother or father or any other kin or any friend or any human love. We cannot live without the earth or apart from it. And something is shriveled in a man's heart when he turns away from it and concerns himself only with the affairs of men. Rollins did not present the people of the big scrub in idyllic or nostalgic prose. Rather, she recognized the harshness of the environment, describing it as a vast wall, keeping out the timid and the alien. As Turcott phrases it, she wanted her readers to imagine, hear, smell, even feel the place against their skin. In the case of the big scrub, she wanted her readers to feel the malevolence of the place, toward human intruders. 
or as Patrick Smith described the big scrub, in all of America there is not a more wild and hostile land. The soil, a sandy loam, is the habitat of bear, deer, panther, razor-sharp Spanish sword capable of ripping the hide from man or beast, rattlesnakes and wolves, and everything that nature can use to attempt to destroy the will of man. For miles and miles, this country resembles a hell on earth, which only God could have created to test the fortitude of man and beast. The harshness and lack of forgiveness in nature Rawlings described becomes a character in her stories. This understanding of nature can be juxtaposed with the triumphant contemporary assurance that humans could conquer and control nature to their own uses, an assurance with less confidence in the 21st century. And Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' writing still stands up today, of course. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers, the first line of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's 1947 book, Everglades, River of Grass, is, There are no other Everglades in the world. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. In 1928, landscape architect Ernest Coe created the Tropical Everglades National Park Association and led efforts to establish a national park dedicated to the preservation of the Everglades. Due in large part to his advocacy, in 1934, Congress passed legislation to create Everglades National Park. Ben DiBiase is a Floridian and a historian with the Cultural and Heritage Resources Management Company, Paleo West. He told me more about the formation of the Everglades National Park. So the Everglades National Park, as we know it today, is one of the largest preserved tropical wildernesses in, in all of North America. In fact, it's one of the largest national parks in the continental U.S. in the national park system. Uh, and it encompasses a huge part of southern Florida, so parts of Dade County, Collier County, and Monroe County, from about the, the headwaters, which is near you know south-central Florida, Lake Okeechobee, flowing south. So the Everglades is, as Marjorie Stoneman Douglas described it, a river of grass. It's a very slow-moving river that kind of of starts around the Okeechobee area and just flows down the, the southern landmass of South Florida and empties into Florida Bay. It's a freshwater system, and then it mixes with the saltwater of Florida Bay and becomes this very unique, ecologically speaking, a unique subtropical environment that's home to millions of diverse plant and animal life. 
When Everglades National Park was established, there were still people living and working in the Everglades. In the 19th century, the Seminole took refuge in the Everglades while eluding the U.S. government's efforts to forcibly relocate them to Oklahoma. In the 20th century, they continued to live there, even as preservation efforts and increased tourism further encroached upon their lives. There were also people known as Gladesmen and Everglades Hermits living within Everglades National Park until the 1980s. You also, in the 19th century, had a number of just kind of a, a smattering of, of different characters that lived down there. Some of these people were, you know, escaping the, the law. Some of these people were just, just wanted to get away from civilization. They were living on the frontier. They became kind of collectively known as the Everglades Hermits. And a lot of these people lived along the western uh, coast, the southwestern coast, so from Cape Sable north up into, you know, near present-day Naples, along that scattered area called the 10,000 Islands. You had a lot of these people that really just lived off the land. They were uh, fishermen, and they were hunters and trappers, and they traded with the Seminole and the Kasuki, and they just sort of lived this kind of untouched life, you know, for many years. And then it all started changing in the 20th century, and, and you had the development and, and establishment of a park. So now you have the federal government trying to figure out, okay, what's the procedure? How do you deal with people who have lived here forever? And a lot of people had these special permits, so they were allowed to live within the park boundaries on their original homesteads or, or their farms or whatever, it really usually until they died, so they couldn't give the land to anyone else, so they could really live out the rest of their lives. And a lot of these people did. And they had just some fascinating stories. There were some great oral histories that had been collected in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of which were done by the National Park Service to kind of capture those stories. People continued to reside and work within the boundaries of Everglades National Park until the late 20th century. One area of the Everglades, known as the Hole in the Donut, was originally set aside for agricultural use. When you looked at a map of the Everglades Park, there's this big carved out area, and it looks like a hole in a donut. And that's the area that was essentially left out of the park and preserved for agricultural development, which, which occurred throughout the next couple of decades until about 1975, when the federal government finally purchased up all of that land and began restoration efforts. And it really became one of the largest and beginnings of this massive movement for Everglades um, restoration. So not only preservation, but restoration of the natural water flow. That hole in the donut section, which is it's, its own fascinating story, because you had uh, different groups of migrant laborers that lived and worked in and around that area in beginning in, in around the 1920s and actually a little bit earlier, the teens through through the 1970s. And that area, I think, is a good microcosm for the story of migrant labor, farm labor in Florida, because early on you had a lot of, it, the, the migrant laborers were comprised of Caribbean workers, primarily those from Jamaica, from the Bahamas, that came to South Florida and sought work in the fields that became eventually became part of the Everglades. And then later during the Depression era, you had both white and black workers that were working for the Works Progress Administration, for the Farm Securities Administration, trying to find work. These migrant laborers coming from all over the country to South Florida to work in the, the potato and tomato fields uh, of what became the Hole in the Donut. The Hole in the Donut agricultural area was officially acquired by the U.S. government and became a part of Everglades National Park in 1975. In recent years, there have been restoration efforts in the Hole in the Donut, including the removal of invasive Brazilian pepper plants. Today, Everglades National Park is teeming with plant and animal species not found anywhere else in the world. It's home to the manatee, the American crocodile, and the Florida panther. The park is also a birder's paradise with more than 350 different species of birds. Its unique ecosystem makes Everglades National Park one of the most visited parks in the United States. 
Ben DiBiase. This day and age, it's a little bit difficult, of course, to travel, but generally the, the Everglades Park receives about a million visitors a year, so it's a, a very highly visited national park. The Everglades story is, it goes well beyond, you know, just the story of this really diverse and fascinating and wonderful biodiversity, but also the human story, the anthropological story, if you will, the story of human beings and their impact, especially in the recent history of the Everglades, I think is so fascinating and a story that is a big part of the development of Florida, really, as a whole. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.